We're going to continue through our series on the five solas, and we've gotten to grace alone. Sola gratia is how it is in Latin. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at lots of different texts this morning, following along with us in your Bible. We'll try to get some of them up on the screen for you as well. But sola gratia, grace alone. Grace may be the most ubiquitous term floating around the church today. It's, I mean, it's just everywhere. Every Christian denomination, regardless of what they believe on anything, has at least one church that has grace in the name. I mean, every, no matter how heretical they are, they'll have grace somewhere. And grace as a term isn't, isn't really uh, a word that gives us any indication of what the church believes. If just the word grace is in their name, and neither is grace alone likely to offend anyone. For us to say, yeah, it's grace alone, that's just not going to be as offensive as maybe faith alone. Faith alone, we talked about last week, people were going to go, well, I don't know if that's really it. I think we need to, to do all we can, and then we get, you know, faith kind of helps us boost over the edge. Or Christ alone would be, is pretty offensive, right? Because we're saying Allah is not a way to heaven, Buddha is not a way to heaven, your good works aren't a way to heaven, it's Christ alone. That's pretty offensive. But grace alone is not likely to offend anyone. But, I mean, even think about our, our godless culture appreciates grace, right? They, they insist you should be gracious unless you did one kind of sin when you were 15 forever ago, and they can find it on Twitter and bring it back up, then there's no grace. But they all want grace for themselves, and they admire that. We admire dancers who are graceful. You know, we want our diplomats to carry themselves with class and grace. I mean, it's just this word that gets thrown around all the time. However, I do think that it does lose some of its empty sentiment when we define it. What is grace? And that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with what it is and then work through some instances in the scriptures as to where it comes up and just follow the story of grace. And then we're going to really dial down on what does it mean to be saved by grace alone. And we're going to start with this question a painfully revealing question that just exposes our own hearts is this. What does God owe me? We've got to start there. What does God owe me? Now, keep that in the back of your mind as we search the scriptures this morning. Let's look at the definition of grace. How is grace typically understood? Typically, in kind of loose ways, it's just broad permissiveness. In the extreme wrong case, grace is just permitting anything and everything as acceptable. But that's what some people define grace. So the example would be, biblically, of that being a wrong definition would be 1 Corinthians 5. Remember 1 Corinthians 5? Paul's writing to that church who's so proud. They're like, look at how gracious we are. We've let this guy who has, who's sleeping with his father's wife, we've let him stay in the church. Look how gracious we are. And Paul says, you should be ashamed of yourselves. That's not what grace is. So it can't be that. It can't be broad permissiveness. Uh, another way we look at it, typically, not we, maybe others, maybe look at it as just overlooking sin, that grace is just turning a blind eye to sin or to wrong, to human sinfulness in general, that God is just, you know, kind of like the parent of a rebellious child just chooses not to care about that thing that's being done that's wrong, about the evil deeds. Just I'm going to choose not to make a deal out of this. And that's something that mama never did. Never did. 
Anybody else grow up like that? My mom, I remember we would be in Walmart and another kid would be screaming at his parents on another aisle and my mom would get down to us and go, we didn't come here to listen to that little boy scream, did we? I'm like, no, I'm getting in trouble for that kid on the next aisle over. Talk about no grace. Because she's like, if you ever did that, you would be feeling the wrath. Both of those things, broad permissiveness and overlooking sin, that, those defy the very nature of God. God cannot permit everything a human can possibly do as acceptable. And God cannot overlook sin. So we're going to have to define it differently than that. So let's move down another category from just kind of broad cultural sentiments about grace to just broad biblical definitions of grace. So grace in general is receiving something that you don't deserve. That's what distinguishes it a little bit from mercy. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. But really, they can kind of be the same idea. And the Bible tends to use the two words rather interchangeably. But what do we deserve? If grace is getting something that you don't deserve, what do we deserve? What have we earned biblically? I mean, this is an Awana verse, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sometimes you have to explain what wages are. When, I'm at, when I've shared the gospel before to you know, younger folks, they don't know what the word wages means. They're like, wages is what you get paid. So you do sin, you get paid in death every time. That's what you've earned. That's what you deserve. You have earned and deserve eternal death in hell. So that means then, what does God owe us? God, the only thing that he owes people is eternal condemnation and unquenchable flame. So then in the broadest sense, everything that's not hell is grace, because that's the only thing that we've earned, and that's the worst possible circumstance a human being could ever be in, and everything that's not that is grace. No matter how bad life is here on earth or how much worse it can get, it's not eternal judgment void of the loving presence. So in that sense, it's grace. Therefore, everything in your life right now is God's grace because you could be in hell and you're not. That's grace. So that's kind of like a level three definition biblically of grace. Level two, move down a little bit more. That's grace in general. But what, there's this thing that theologians have called, and I think helpfully called common grace. Now, common grace is God's love towards all of humanity in a sense that everybody benefits from God in some way. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 5, 45 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, what do we take that to mean? That when it rains, God doesn't just go, okay, where the Christians' crops, rain ends here. Oh, rain falls on everybody in the area, right? Whether they're living in sin or whether they're living in righteousness. That's common grace. That's God being good to people who don't deserve it and people who, quote, do deserve it. People who are following in obedience, people who are not. That's common grace is what it's called. I mean, you have to think about it like this, too. In the, in, the, in the instances of humanity and the way the history flows out, why has there only ever been one Holocaust? People have been wicked for forever. The book of Genesis in the days of Noah says that man's heart is evil and, and thinks of evil only always continually. There's only ever been one Holocaust? Why, why is every single leader not Hitler? What's keeping them from that? Unbelievers who become leaders over countries, why do they not become Hitler? It seemed to work. The guy just got a little greedy. 
Why are they not that? What is stopping them from being as bad and as wicked as they could be? Even secular countries with secular leaders, why are things decently okay on the whole? That laws are relatively enforced in most places, and other places like here, they're pretty much enforced. Evil is punished, good is rewarded. Why? Why is there this restraint on evil? That's God's common grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.7, we're not going to read the whole thing. But in, in 2 Thessalonians, is a big kind of eschatological book. It talks about the end, of, end times. And it talks about this man of lawlessness in chapter 2 is going to come about. We don't have time to dig into who he is. But that God says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, that he who now restrains is going to stop. He probably being, I can't see it any other way, but being that the Holy Spirit is restraining evil. And in that day that 2 Thessalonians 2 is talking about, that restraint is going to be lifted and it's going to go wild. So there is a restraint on evil that we live under, under right now. Otherwise, why are we not in nuclear war? Why, is, why are rockets not going off all the time and blowing and obliterating everybody? We have the capacity to clean off the planet. Why is that not happening? Because God is restraining evil, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then you think about common grace going even further why does any human being get to be born on this planet that sustains life all on its own? Drinking water comes out of the ground. Meat runs around in the woods. Plants that sustain nutrients just grow out of the dirt. Human beings as a race have brains and bodies capable of thinking through and bringing the muscle to bear and restraining and also resourcing all of that stuff that's just here. It's just here. And why is all of this true? What human being brought any of that about? It's just all of God's common grace. And if we sit and just think about it, then it can be kind of a dumbfounding reality for us. A year or so ago or two years ago, I can't remember exactly when, I got invited to uh, go to a Spurs game. Now, I'm a Mavericks fan, but I went just to be a good Christian servant because it was box seats and had a free buffet, so I was going to suffer for the kingdom at a Spurs game. And you got to give San Antonio. What else do they have going on? Not a whole lot. The only thing's there is the Alamo, and we lost that one. Uh, so this Spurs game was not any kind of Spurs game. It was the day that, that they were going to retire Manu Ginobili's jersey. So after the game was going to be this big, huge ceremony, and it was almost like if I were him sitting watching through this thing, like you're watching your own funeral, in a sense, because you're there and everybody's cheering. People flew from Argentina to come to the game. They're just regular people, not diplomats. And I mean, it's just this huge fanfare for Manu Ginobili, this Spurs player who was great back in the dynasty days. And, uh, and he eventually got the microphone after everybody had been done telling everybody how great he was and people had come and uh, you know, shared about how great he was and all these things. And then he got the microphone and it, to me, it was the most shocking display of honesty from a celebrity or professional athlete. Because he got the microphone, he's from Argentina, and he, and he just kind of said, it was kind of a, it kind of just sucked the life out of the room a little bit until he was done, and then everybody started cheering again. But he got up on the microphone and said, you know, I, I, everybody's been so nice, and y'all are so amazing for coming, all the fans there. I mean, they were packed out to watch him play the, the Cavaliers. 
just because they all wanted to see Manu. And he, so he thanked the crowd, he thanked the people who came, the coaches and the players who all came, and he said, I don't know why any of this has happened. He said, I wasn't better than any other kid in Argentina, and, and, and then even still, I'm in Argentina, I'm not in the United States, how did I end up playing professional basketball? I didn't make myself this tall, I didn't make myself... Uh, able to dribble like this. I didn't make myself with this kind of innate desire to, to hustle and to learn and to grow. Uh, but nevertheless, here I am. And he just kind of left it at that. And, and as, a, as a Christian, you're watching him going, it's because of God. <laughs> like, that's who you have to thank. Like, that's why it's there. But he was just so painfully honest, but then just into a black hole of emptiness. He had been of the benefit of all of this common grace. That he had, and he had no concept for where it came from or who to thank. Just wanted to run down onto the court and say, it was because of the God of the Bible. That's why. The sad reality is, is that grace is raining down all around the lost, and they have no eyes to see and no ears to hear. But the exciting news is, is that we can go to them and point it out around them. This is why it's like this. This is why this grace rains down around you because there is a loving and personal God. And so then to move into this kind of third level of grace. So we have just kind of general grace, everything that's not hell. We have common grace, good things that happen to all people. And then we have special grace. Now this is where we're going to spend the majority of our times because in the Protestant Reformation, where all these concepts have kind of come from, they got codified then and come to us from there. That's what they were after, special grace, meaning God's peculiar grace towards his elect and redeeming them for all of eternity, saving grace. That's what this one is after, that sinners are saved by grace alone. So in order to kind of illuminate this for us, we're going to follow a few stories of grace in the Bible, just kind of the thread through the Bible of of God's grace, special grace to his people. So we can start at the beginning. Only two people in the history of the universe have ever lived under uh, some kind of different circumstance between God and man than, than we have. That's Adam and Eve. Two people lived in very different circumstances that they were offered eternal life by works. Have you ever thought about that when you think about it? That th they were offered eternal life by works. Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. God speaking to Adam. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. What was Adam told right there? What did God say? God said, Do this and you will live. Do this and live. That, that's how he was going to have life eternal. That only, the only, Adam only had one way to bring about eternal death. That was by eating the fruit. And if he just lived and never ate it, his life would just continue on. He would have eternal life based on what he did. That was the system that God had put him in and underneath. Now, we, of course, know that Adam and Eve did indeed eat the fruit. So they went from the agreement or covenant that God had with Adam and Eve from works-based to now everything after that is grace, including for Adam and Eve. 
because they received. Grace appears in several ways in that first moment when grace is needed. Look at Genesis 3, verse 9. This is after they've sinned, the Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Why is that grace? Adam ate the fruit, and then God says, where are you? When when we come to stories like this that are so familiar, we have to almost go back to elementary, like unlearn what we've learned and thought about, and we just kind of know this. What could God have said? He could have said, Adam, I'm omniscient. I see everything. I know where you are, and I'm going to incinerate you right now. He could have said that, but what did he say? Where are you? He didn't. Was he confused? That's grace. He didn't just annihilate them instantaneously either. As soon as the apple went into their mouths, he could have just immediately annihilated them. He didn't do that. It's grace. He pursued them and called out to them, why are you hiding? Why do you have coverings? That's grace. Genesis 3.21. And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now again, we We know that he made them animal skins at that moment. But have you thought about this? God said to them in that moment, hey, even though you sinned, I'm going to go kill this other life to cover the consequence that you've incurred by your sin. Another life is going to pay for your sin, and I'm going to take care of that. It's grace. He says your attempts to cover yourself weren't going to do anything to help you. Those fig leaves are not going to help you because now there's thorns and now there's thistles and now there's hard work and now there's sweat and now there's pain. And you're going to need something more durable than that. I'll go take care of it. I'll take it upon myself to bloody my hands by taking these other lives to cover you and pay for you. It's grace. Genesis 3.15, when God's cursing the, the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know what? The church has called this since the beginning. They've called this verse the Proto-Evangelion. It's a fancy way of saying first gospel. This is the first time that the gospel appears in the entire Bible. How is this the gospel? Enmity between you, Satan, representative of all evil and sin, and the woman. And I'm going to put enmity between your offspring And her offspring, singular, your singular offspring. And that's really what the word means in Hebrew is is seed. Now, I didn't do great in biology, but I do know this. Women do not have seed. So how is this going to happen? How is she going to have a baby all by herself? Well, this is prophecy of the virgin birth. And then when you're trying to kill a serpent and all you have is your own body, what are you going to do? You're going to stomp its head out with your heel. Are you going to do it gingerly so you don't bruise your heel? No, you're going to make sure that sucker is dead. So if if I bruise my heel a little bit, I'm going to strike his head and he's going to die for sure. So I'll recover from my bruise. He will not. This is a foreshadowing of the cross. That Jesus, though he's bruised for three days in the womb, he comes, or in the tomb, he comes back. Satan's crushed forever in that moment. So what did they do in that moment to earn God's promise of single-handedly eliminating evil and sin and death and Satan forever? Nothing. 
All they had done was sin. And God gave them grace and said, I'm going to take care of it all by myself. There's this moment, you guys can, can YouTube this, There's a, it was a Ligonier conference. Ligonier's a ministry, and they do conferences and, and uh, teaching videos and books and stuff like that. And anyways, R.C. Sproul is the guy who did that ministry, and they did these question and answers, and this was just a few years before he died, so he was, he was old and cranky, and he had earned the right to be a little gruff. And somebody sent in a question, and he's up on stage at this big conference hall, and the question was something along the lines of, uh, Dr. Sproul, uh, how could it be that God was, could be so harsh to Adam and Eve uh, to, to kick them out of the garden and, and curse them like he did uh, when all they did was, was eat the sin, or they sinfully ate the, uh, the fruit? And he, you, you got to YouTube it because it's great. He, he gets the microphone, and he goes, too harsh? And he turns to the whole crowd and goes, what's wrong with you people? As loud as he can. And then everybody laughs probably because they're uncomfortable, but he goes, I'm serious. What's wrong with you? And then he goes on to explain. He goes, this creature, Adam, that God made from the dirt, defied a holy and righteous God. And God, instead of instantaneously killing him, graciously promises to redeem him and covers him by the death of another life. Too harsh. How is that too harsh? He said, you will surely die. Did they die? No. And so he goes on and on, and that's what we saw in Genesis 3. And this covenant, this grace relationship between God and people extends from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 21. God, same grace of God, different iterations, but everyone, everywhere, and every time has always been saved by grace alone. It's always been God's grace that's always been presented as grace. There's never been another manner of salvation by which people could be saved. Never. Since then. And then Genesis just shows us that story right off the bat with Abraham in Genesis 12. What was Abraham doing? We, know, we all know that God came to Abraham, Genesis 12, and he says, I will be your God, and you, you will be my people. The people that harm you, I'm going to harm. People who bless you, I'm going to bless. And then we see that and go, yeah, yeah, this just kind of happens because that's how it happens. What was Abraham doing at that time? He lives in Ur of the Chaldees. What is he doing? He's a pagan, godless heathen. What was he doing to, go, to God to go, yeah, you know what? Abraham seems like a good promising lead there. He was a godless heathen, and God moves towards him in Genesis 12. And then God gets even more specific with his grace to Abraham in Genesis 15. I'm going to read Genesis 15, 7 through 10, and then 12 17 and 18. So we're going to kind of skip to the main parts of this section as the covenant that he makes with Abraham kind of expands. And God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. And he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. Does that seem weird to you? Abraham's like, God, how do I know that you're going to give me this land? And God says, hey, get a bunch of animals and cut them in half. No explanation. And so Abraham's like, all right. So he gets them and he does. He cuts them in half and just spreads them apart. So there's half a body lining this little walkway. So then verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. 
And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. So he's, in a sense, kind of in this trance on the side. And when the sun had gone down, this is verse 17, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, you need a little bit of insight for this to make sense to you. You see this kind of covenant ceremony in the book of Jeremiah, but if you're reading chronologically through your Bible, you don't get to Jeremiah for a long time. But what's happening here is this is an ancient Near East covenant ceremony. This is what you would do. You would take animals, you'd cut them in half, spread them apart. Both parties of the covenant, both guys, walk between the pieces. And they're saying symbolically when they do that is, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I break my end of the covenant. So you're just making a promise right there in front of everybody. I'm, I'm promising to death that if I break my end, you cut me in half like you, we cut this cow in half. Now, who walked through the pieces? God represented as a flaming torch. He went through them alone. Where's Abraham? He's over on the side doing nothing. But God in his grace says, here's how you're going to know that I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to promise and covenant with myself. So God, in this moment, unilaterally and unconditionally makes this covenant promise to Abraham. Abraham didn't merit it. He didn't earn it. This is the precursor kind of covenant to the fulfillment that came true at the cross. Abraham didn't earn any of that, and God said, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. And it just goes on. As the Old Testament goes on, let's just look at one more group here in the Old Testament with Moses and Israel. We're, just gonna, we're not even going to get past Deuteronomy this morning uh, in the Old Testament. But Moses and Israel, the law of God comes in at Exodus 20 and continues out throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, or Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the law comes, and we look at the law and we go, oh, the law is bad. But think about it from their perspective. What do they have at that point in time to tell them who God is? They have Moses, who occasionally, when God chooses, God talks to him, and then he tells the people who God is and what he thinks, and what he does and what he wants. Other than that, nobody has anything written down to understand and think through who God is. But God says, hey, y'all come around this mountain, and I'm going to tell you exactly who I am. And I'm going to tell you exactly how to worship me. I'm going to tell you word for word how I will acceptably receive you in my presence. I will tell you word for word on what kind of worship I want. Word for word, what will make you right with me when you sin inevitably. That's grace. What could he have done? He could have just left them like the godless pagans in Jeremiah 10, verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. These people are just trying to figure it out. They're like, well, maybe this is a God, and if I want to move over there, I have to pick him up and carry him because he can't walk. He can't tell me who he is. He can't tell me what he wants. He can't tell me what's right. He can't tell me what's wrong. God could have left us, could have left Israel stumbling around in the darkness, just trying to figure out. I know I got here somehow, and Darwin's not going to come around for another couple millennia to make up an excuse for how we got here. There's something out there bigger than me. I don't know what it is or who he is, and I hope that I'm doing what makes him happy. But God doesn't do that. He says, this is exactly how 
I want to be worshipped. This is exactly how you will be right to me. Because you look at Moses and the Israelites, and we almost put the law on them as if they figured it out and they created this whole thing. No, there's somebody there taking notes. This is what God said. This is what God said. They didn't create the sacrificial system in any way. They were just trying to like, wow, God seems angry. Let's try to make him happy by giving him a pile of dead animals. I bet that'll help. They didn't come up with that. God said that. No human contrived the old covenant law. God took the initiative to condescend down to them. And then there's this peak uh, illustration of God's grace in Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16. And we're just going to read those two verses and then verses 20 and 22. This chapter talks about the day of atonement. How are Israel's sins going to be atoned for every year? And God said, word for word, this is how I will count your sins not against you. Word for word. Tells them exactly what to do. It's a ceremony. We're not going to read the whole thing. It involves two goats. One goat gets slaughtered. One goat gets cast out. This is where the term scapegoat comes from. comes from here. The first goat gets slaughtered, verse 15. Then he, meaning Aaron, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with it, do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Now that is massive. That sends you back to Romans 3. We don't have time for that. Verse 16. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. One goat, number one, gets killed. Next goat, number two, verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting of, and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, does that ceremony actually remove sin? No. Did God need however many years of one dead goat and one wandering goat? Does that, does that actually make their sins go away? Or did God in his grace say, I'm going to accept this until the full payment comes later on. I'm going to accept this as atonement for sin. That's grace. God doesn't need a pile of dead animals. He's not saying that's what's going to really make me happy is a pile of dead animals. No, God's just showing his mercy and his grace to an entire people. He says it to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 8. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is where Moses gets to see his back. The Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then it skips down to verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. God says, I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and I forgive sins. He forgives sins. And that's Exodus 34. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 32? Aaron throws gold in a fire, and out comes this calf. Moses, I don't know what to tell you. 
That's what, he, that's what he says. He's like, I just put the gold in, and this is what came out. They worshiped a golden calf. And God says, after that, I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger. He's still being gracious to this wicked, sinful people. And when now we've seen this massive umbrella of God's grace towards his people that he opened up with Abraham. Romans 4, 16 says that. He says, that is why it, salvation, depends on faith. In order that the promise, the promise made to Abraham, the promise goes back to Genesis 3, 15, that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, meaning Abraham's offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Abraham is not just the father of faith. He's the poster boy of, of grace. The whole promise that he got was resting on grace. It's like one nail on the wall, and everything is hanging off that one nail. And that nail is grace, which makes us the offspring of Abraham, just children of grace. You ever seen that song growing up? Father Abraham have many sons. You know why? That's, this is why we are his sons and daughters if we in faith believe in Jesus Christ and then God's grace comes to us. So who taught that, Romans 4? Who taught that in the New Testament? It was Paul. Paul brings this idea together with this, of, of Abraham's faith and our faith being of the same kind. He does that in Romans and in Galatians but how does that covenant promise come to us as individuals? It's the same way that it always does, by grace through faith. And Paul's life is the perfect example. Acts 9, you're familiar with his story, I'm sure, of how he got saved. But Saul is what his name was, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did, did he do anything in this moment to incur that dramatic intrusion into his life, that grace shining all around him? Nothing. He wasn't on the way to go, you know what, I'm really like a seeker. And they seem seeker sensitive in Damascus. I'm going to go figure out what's over there. And he's like, I hate them. I want them all to die. They're following the way of Jesus. I'm going to go obliterate them and bring them, bring them back so they can get killed here. And then this light shines around him. That is grace. And we know the story goes on that he's blinded by that. He, nobody else saw it, even though they were with him. And then he gets taken to this place on the street called Straight. And Ananias is sent there. And God says, I'm going to send a prophet to go to him, a prophet who doesn't want to go to him. And he goes, and he talks to him, shares the gospel with him, and then he believes. And then he's baptized in verse 18. And taking food, he was strengthened. Paul wasn't displaying any potential to be a good and godly Christian, let alone the apostle who writes half the New Testament. Not displaying anything that God would go, you know what, I want that on my team. That's good potential right there. That's a solid draft pick. Now, that's the worst guy you could ever choose ever, but God nevertheless does choose him by the blinding light of grace. God saved Paul when Paul didn't want it. He didn't want to be saved. He didn't believe in Jesus. But in his grace, God made it come about in Paul irresistibly, irresistibly drew him to himself. See, throughout the Bible, we see 
what we see, rather, what we see in the Bible are creatures that the Creator chooses to bless though they deserve nothing from Him. See, that's even the exclusive story of the Bible. That's the only kind of story there is in the Bible of anyone who becomes favorable in God's eyes. The only humans who exist are those who deserve nothing from God. And yet, from Genesis Revelation, we see God sovereignly bestowing His grace on those whom He chooses because grace is how we're saved. See, whenever we see God's people, what we see is an outpouring of grace. And the greatest outpouring of that grace came at Calvary, Christ on the cross. God is gracious because He provides for His people what they cannot provide for themselves. And that is a suitable sacrifice. He provides for his people what they can't provide for himself. Uh, in a way, and that's a way into his presence for forever through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. We, we're going to sing in a little bit, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Similarly, the crimson stain, he washed me white as snow. Not he gave me a brush and I got to scrub him. He washed me Jesus paid it all. Not some of it, not most of it, not 99% of it. Jesus paid it all. Now, how does that affect the Old Testament saints? Because we looked at Leviticus 16 like, it's not going to really work. Something's going to have to come and really pay that. Well, God had a plan. Romans 3, 23 through 25. We all know the first verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it goes on, and are justified, talked about that last week, by what? His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And who was he? He was the one God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And how does that come to us? To be received by faith. What was the point of that? It was to show God's righteousness. How? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Whose former sins? Everybody in the Old Testament who died in faith. They were saved on credit that came due with the cross. Y'all keep doing these sacrifices, and then I'm going to pay it off all the way at the cross. You live off credit in the Old Testament. Everybody after Jesus lives on debit. That's how it works. It's grace through and through all the way. See, we're justified by the same faith as New Testament believers or Old Testament believers. And it's all based on grace. See, our sin is cosmic treason of the highest order against a holy God. And grace is the only thing sufficient to rectify it. And that rectifying grace must be bloody. It has to be. Hebrews 9.22. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If there's no blood shed, God can't forgive. See, the grace of God and salvation is not just God deciding to be cool about our sin. Okay, I'll just, you know, let it go. I'll let it slide. I'm going to choose to ignore it. No, he has to punish the wicked. We saw that in Exodus 34. We see it in Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. But if he is merciful and also does not clear the guilty, how do you square those? Because we're guilty. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 explains it perfectly. That's an Old Testament passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, Jesus, stricken. Like we were glad to see him beaten, smitten by Satan, 
No, smitten by God. God did it to Jesus and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That, that's how. That's how he can be merciful and yet never clear the guilty. He made Jesus guilty so that he could clear us. God doesn't overlook our sin. He just dumped it all on Jesus and judged him for it. Blood was shed because you can't have forgiveness without that. Blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. It just wasn't our blood. God graciously chose to execute his son while he carried our sins on his person so that we could be truly forgiven. Salvation comes to us freely by God's grace when we trust in Jesus. But how is it? This is what we have to think about with grace. How is it that sinful, wretched people like you and me are able to put our faith in Jesus? How are we able to do that? Is faith something that we just all intrinsically possess? We just all kind of have that, you know, the Holy Spirit just kind of functions as a divine uh, financial advisor coming alongside saying, hey, you know what? The best place to invest that faith that you already have intrinsically on your own is in Jesus. By far the best return on your investment you'll ever get. So just go ahead and do that there. He's just trying to convince you of that. See, brothers and sisters, that's how the majority population thinks about salvation by grace, that everyone's born with just a little bit of faith, a little bit of portion of faith, and you just need to deposit that in Jesus. You already have it, so just go put it in the bank of Jesus, and then that's where it'll count the most, and that's where you can get forgiven. But let's think clearly about this. If that were true, wouldn't that be salvation by works? Wouldn't that be me saved by what I've done? Means that you knew the right thing to do with the faith that you possessed all on your own, and you decided to do that right thing, and that right thing was to do the good deed of handing over your faith to Jesus? Wouldn't that just be a a good work? Brothers and sisters, that's works-based salvation. So then where does saving faith come from? Philippians 1.29 tells us. For it has been granted to you. It has been granted to you. What has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you to believe. Believing faith is a gift in itself. He gives that to us in his grace. This possession of faith itself is an act of God's grace. He gave to you what you did not have in order to save you from the just, the just judgment that you deserve. And the flagship verse for sola gratia, grace alone, is Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Those prepositions and that word order matters. By grace you have been saved through faith. See, we memorize that verse, and rightly so, we all should, and, but then we don't think anything about it. And forever, I mean, maybe probably up until a year ago, I got those prepositions and those word orders mixed up all the time because we just kind of view it as this gospel-y stew. Just throw it all in there and that's all the words that matter. By and through and grace and faith and boom, saved. But God wrote it down in an order on purpose with specific words on purpose. So we're saved by grace, period, overarching thing. 
And it's by grace that God allows us to be saved through faith. So faith is subservient to grace. Grace comes first, then faith. It's by God's grace that I've been given faith to believe. Without sola gratia, there is no sola fide. Without grace alone, there is no faith alone. If God doesn't first graciously give me faith, then I have no hope of being saved. How can I? You know what Romans 5 describes us all as? Describes us all as helpless, ungodly sinners who are God's enemies. Those are the three, the four terms that that, that chapter describes us as. How can that person then somehow get faith to believe? It's got to be given to him. It's got to be given to her in order to be able to believe. If God doesn't move towards me first, then I have no hope. If God isn't gracious to me, then I stand condemned. Grace precedes faith in the order of salvation. But think about it like this. Grace precedes, faith, grace precedes every of everything. God, God could have just worked for our salvation by the law. Do all 613 of those. No other way. That's it. He could have done that. He could have just ignored us entirely after Adam fell in the garden and just let history roll on. He didn't. Stayed connected. Stayed there with us. Sovereign grace undergirds everything we know about life, family, faith, and existence. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, 28, For in God we live and move and have our being. Grace is what saves us. Now, you might be saying, that sounds wonderful, man. I'm so thankful for God and his grace. But here's the deal. How do I live in light of that? Because I find myself, I don't know about you, but I find myself as a miserable failure as a follower of God. <laughs> that that I, I don't have the discipline, maybe you're thinking, or the strength to respond to God's grace in the way that is appropriate. Growing in Christ-likeness is just so difficult because I still sin so much. Are you feeling like that? If you are, can I encourage you this morning? Romans 6, 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Fact, statement of fact. Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, the truth of God's word is that we're not only saved by grace, we're also sanctified by grace. We're, we're started in salvation, we're given salvation, rather, in grace, and then we're sustained from now till we go to heaven by grace. It's always grace. See, none of us is going to be able to look back over our Christian lives uh, and growing in spiritual maturity and go, you know what? I really did buckle down after a while, and man, I made myself more Christ-like. I got on the stick, man. I'm sure glad I got serious about living the Christian life because look at all the progress I've made. I'm killing it. Nobody's ever going to be able to get to a point and be able to say that. And if you do have that posture, just know you're living contrary to the Apostle Paul as he writes the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Currently, at that moment, I am what I am because of the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. How is Paul what is what he is? Grace. What, when he was working harder, what was actually at work? Grace. Sola gratia 
Grace alone doesn't mean we put forth no effort. Because Paul, look, lives here in this painful contradiction. I mean, if, you, if you're a given to that, I work harder than any of them, though I don't work, but grace in me. Well, do you work or do you not work, Paul? Well, he can't figure it out because it's a mystery that we live in constantly. I am putting forth effort. I am trying to read my Bible. I am repenting of sin. I am confessing my sin. I am striving for holiness. I am trying to be a godly husband or wife or child or church member, but I can't take any of the credit for anything that's ever happened in my life that's Godward in any way. That's what the Apostle Paul says right there. So sola gratia doesn't mean we put forth no effort. It just means we take credit for nothing that happens in our lives. No credit for the sanctification going on in their lives. You can't be like my four-year-old son. I took him when I was playing in a Frisbee golf tournament. It's a serious sport, athletic sport. Uh, a lot of walking and throwing plastic circles that you could just have a picnic on. Anyways, so we were playing in this tournament, and he was with me, and it was hot, and eventually, you know, got hot and tired and said, can I ride in the stroller? And I was like, you're four years old. What do you mean riding the stroller? But he did. And then at the very end of the tournament, it came down to the wire. We were playing doubles. I sunk this putt. I'll show you the video if you really want to see it. To win the tournament. And I got the prize, which was a spray-painted gold Frisbee. And Shane came home saying, four-year-old son, Mom, I won the tournament. Look at my trophy. And I was like, who won the tournament, Shane? You were there, but I did all the work. I mean, you were sweating, but I was the one actually putting the circle into the basket to win the game. That's us. We're just going to be smarter than a four-year-old and go, I didn't win. I'm on the winning team, but I didn't do it. I was there, but I didn't do it. You know what that does? Because you know what's forever true about those who are in Christ? Was we are weak. And Paul says that's a great thing. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he, meaning God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's grace is more than enough to carry you through your weaknesses in living the Christian life. And in fact, your weaknesses, go ahead and just give him more glory and make his grace shine that much brighter. So why is this precious to us? God moved towards us first. He chose to love when we had no option but to hate him. That's why it's precious to us. Left to ourselves, we would never turn to Christ. Grace is our identity as a people, as the people of God, as a church, as an individual church. It defines us. Carl Truman, Bible scholar, he said it like this, and I thought it was poignant. I'm going to read it to you. He said, when fallen sinful creatures come before God, they need to be reminded that God is gracious toward them, that he chooses to bless them, not for any merit they possess in themselves, but simply because he, the Lord, has chosen to be merciful to them. God does not treat them as their sin and rebellion deserve. God is a God of grace, and his grace defines what it means for them to be the people of God deserve what God has given us. The, the, the love of God graciously bestowed on us. Why me? Why you? Why us? Now, we're no better than the sinners we see on TV or in the movies or down the street or at the ball field. I mean, this is what grace does. It shatters human pride. 
shatters it and gives all glory to God. Sola gratia, grace alone, humbles us to the dirt. And from there, we're able to worship the God of grace. And then we go to our sinful neighbor and we proclaim the gospel of grace to them without any judgment in our hearts, or judgment in our minds, but just compassion in our hearts, knowing that there, but by the grace of God, go I. You know who said that? John Bradford said that in the 1500s. He was a Puritan, well, he was a pre-Puritan. He was an English reformer in England. And he was with his kind of cadre of men that were learning from him at that time when they were splitting off from the church at Rome. And these prisoners were being marched down the streets of the city in England. And, and people were mocking and scoffing. And then he, to his men, said, There, but by the grace of God, go I. I would be in the line of those being executed for their crimes and their sins if it was not for the grace of God. That, that phrase, there, but by the grace of God, go I, comes from a man who was eventually martyred for the faith by Queen Bloody Mary in the 1500s. And that's our motto. I'm not better than you. God was gracious to me. Let me tell you about it. So I want to end this morning with the ironic blessing, the blessing that Aaron got and was to give to other priests, and we can give to ourselves because we are a kingdom of priests, according to the New Testament. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a concept. Your grace, grace is unfathomable. Our sin was so grievous and despicable, and yet in the midst of that state is when you bestowed grace upon us. There should be some kind of strings attached to this. There's nothing in our experience as humans is truly free like this, but it's so undeserved. Our experience should be infinitely more miserable than it is, but your enemies, it turns them into more heartfelt worshipers than any display of force ever could. So Father, how inexhaustible must your love be to endure the death of your son in order to graciously pardon your enemies. Your grace disarms our pride. It thoroughly humbles us. It allows us as passive receivers of redemption to passionately worship. What else? Lord, what other response even makes sense? It knows no bounds and it cannot be overthrown. We pray for decisively moving toward us in sovereign grace, choosing to make us sons and daughters by your own free will. And may we worship with full hearts and loud mouths every day to anyone who will listen, knowing that you are the chief and true audience of one. And we pray this in Christ's name.